on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I just think we're always being led. I feel like in the end, if, you're, if your soul is a ship and you're steering the course, your soul, let your soul take that course. Most people don't have the courage for that. Or they don't have the time, you know? And I see in the storm of the chaos of, of breakdowns and, and, and men in crisis, right? It's like a, a ship, a pirate ship on top of a stormy ocean with the mast cracking open and people scrambling for life. But underneath that is the soul, which just sees this beautiful creature like a blue whale moving perfectly through calm waters amidst the chaos. You know, there has to be the storm first to find that place of calmness. So I like the idea of, of ultimately, if we really trust, and it's the thing I've had to learn to live deeply, is to trust your soul, it, that it, it knows how to play the long game. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. My guest today is Alan Cook, a filmmaker and poet from the wilds of Ireland. Alan's poetic and literary work is based on reconnecting to the medicine of nature, forged from the sorrow of undergoing numerous personal and cultural losses in his days. Back in 2009, Alan won an Emmy for writing a film about his time in New York City, titled Home. After returning to Ireland, he spent 13 years as a wanderer and walker of the Irish landscape, refining the power of words to alchemize trauma into wisdom. In our conversation today, we speak of his youth growing up in Dublin and his initiation into the poetic imagination. We speak of his hard days in New York and the cascade of loss that met him upon returning to the land of his birth. And we speak of how nature brought Alan back to a deeper sense of his masculinity and how in the end, with enough skill, all darkness turns to beauty. And of course, Alan shares a few poems. I've layered the beautiful heart playing of Andy Anko behind his words. Before we begin, I wish to offer huge gratitude to my Patreon supporters whose support makes this podcast possible. If you're stirred by this podcast, please consider joining. Supporters get access to exclusive bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes updates. Visit themythicmasculine.com and click Become a Supporter to learn more. As well, the Mythic Masculine Network is alive and thriving. It's an online community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. Each week, we explore shared practices, online councils, exclusive film screenings, and much more. Head to network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member. And now, enjoy my conversation with Alan Cook, the wild Irish poet. Welcome, Alan, to the show. Thank you for having me in, and uh, hello from Ireland uh, in, in their deep autumn time here and in the darkness by my little fire. Mm. That's a beautiful segue, as uh, I typically like to ask the guests to share a little bit about where they are in the in the moment of the recording, you know, ge- geographically, spiritually, emotionally. Okay, well, I'll give you try and give you an answer across those three or four landscapes. I am based in Ireland, and I'm specifically in the west of Ireland, which is 
right on the cusp of the Atlantic. But then even more specifically from that, I'm in a place called the Burren, which is in a county called Clare, but the Burren is, and I'm in a retreat center here, which I work in, and I'm in my cob house, which is made of cob for people who don't, and then I'm sitting by my, lying by my fire in my cob house in the retreat center in the Burren near the Atlantic, at the center of very interesting times. But it's a very primitive, wild, elemental place, and the Burren is really unique place in what's normally people view Ireland as being very green and uh, lush. It's actually, this is quite a, um, it's all limestone or a portion of it is just 300 million euro limestone rock. So it has a very barren moon-like, I guess really a very masculine feel because it's a very raw, rough place. We could talk about that more if you want later. But uh, so this is where I've been for, not in this retreat center, but in this part of the world for 12 years. So it's been an enormous odyssey for me. Wow. Well, I'd be uh, amiss to say up front, I also have uh, ancestry from Ireland. Oh, okay. uh, my Yeah, my uh, my grandmother actually was, was born there and um, uh, in County Sligo area. Ah. Yeah. And I've been there uh, twice, actually, which oh, okay. um, over, the, yeah, over the last eight years and uh, both times, yeah, just an incredible um, encounter with the place of which... Um, you know, I'm still very storied, very, very mythical. And yet, you know, I, I, I'm excited to speak to you about one who has tread and, and walked and sung and, you know, spun words about this place. Well, it's interesting because when you said you, the encounter you had with you, Ireland also encounters you or I. Mm. It, mm. it meets you there with your curiosity and meets you there with your ears and eyes and particularly your senses. I, I talk a lot about a man who I don't know if you know much about called John Moyarty. And uh, he's, if I was to give you one person in, in the in the etymology of, of Ireland's oratory ex- explorers, he's at the top of my list. And uh, John is, uh, or was, uh, an enormous mind, an enormous soul of a human being. He um, he had walked, literally walked, and, and, and without, you know, the word Herman always provokes these ideas of, of sort of, slightly bearded, crazy bear. But John was a, a massive intellect and also he brought global esoteric knowledge, but then he brought it to the microcosm of Ireland. And uh, I think and reflect a lot that I've partially lived like that unintentionally that I realized reflecting back now, I spent a, a large degree of my, a portion of the last 12 years of my life in the landscape, in nature, in the wind, in the rain, in the mythology, in the feeling and the nuances of every particle of all the different places that I've walked and traveled here. And I recently came back because we were under lockdown and we were finally released from the lockdown during late August. I went off then with a friend of mine on a sort of mini pilgrimage. And we, we, we came into, we started up in Donegal and then through Sligo and then down by Connemara. We took a break and met up again a week later and went down to Kerry, over the Cork and Kerry Mountains, all those areas. And I know that my, I've done a lot of tour guiding around the country over the last 10 years. I know from a sacred point of view but also from a, an emotional connection point of view and a, and, a, and a sort of dense familiarity with uh with all the different aspects of of the thing that would make ireland such a sacred place and uh, so i i don't know what i've gone segued off a little bit but i was going back to john because the primary source of for how i'm inspired by him is this one line which sticks in my head is that a man um cannot be reborn through the mind only through the senses and sure where do you go for the senses being stimulated it's only in the primacy of nature so couple that with your senses and then the potency of the thin veil of of the irish spirit and the landscape together 
and loss and woundedness and then you have this alchemy you have this forge and that's where i've been living wow wow yeah many themes uh really appreciating already we're we're diving right in um i'd love to hear a little bit more about your upbringing you know initially i understand you grew up in dublin yeah it was a very simple working class background i grew up in a place called kabarak and it was a seaside a sort of a by the sea townlet in a way in a suburb of dublin which was uh, maybe maybe five miles or six or seven kilometers from the city although that's quite a small place dublin you know although it's much bigger now so in the 70s and 80s when i was a child um it was it was uh a very a very i can reflect now more clarity maybe uh that it was a very humble simple working class upbringing yet there was a lot of issues at the time that goes into now i understand more about the history of ireland and see what the what the root of those things were but i was i think i presumed i was generally happy if that's possible as a child and uh i think my imaginings because i was close to the ocean which has always been a theme for me to end up close to the ocean uh had a big influence in my life and i think i can reflect on many stories now thinking back to my parental and ancestral heritage now and part of me is really obliterated part of that Dublin identity. And when someone says to me, where are you from? And even though they know I'm Irish, I'll just say I'm from Ireland because I feel like I'm part of all of this place now. But that took a long time to get to that. But going back to my childhood, it was, you know, I definitely had plenty of uh, of elements, as any Irish childhood would, to be influenced by, by the, uh, by I think, honestly, the, the trauma of the psyche of the nation, be it religiously or or colonization-wise, that uh, those layers were put on me very, very quickly, and it, and it can take a lifetime of work to kind of find out why, what, what it's doing to you. So, I can look back now and reflect in one sense, relatively carefree childhood. But I think that's the natural state of a child. But then I can clearly see a large amount of of emotional, conditional landmines, which mm. which <laughs> blew up in my adulthood many times over, and which. I have to fiercely admit that I still am working on on a lot of that stuff. So I've been very blessed that I've had the gift of writing and the gift of connection with the landscape to be the medicine. So it has changed my view of what Ireland has given to me. In, in um, uh, I won't skip ahead, but I in a documentary, which I'm sure you'll bring up a bit, that I made about New York when I was living there, uh, Malachi McCord, which is Frank McCord's brother, who wrote Angela's Ashes, he said to me, I'm, I'm grateful for Ireland, for everything Ireland has done for me and to me. Hmm. And I think that's pretty much a good summation of of childhood and where I've been up to this point, you know. Hmm. And was poetry then, when did that initially come on for you as, you know, did you encounter poetry? It sounds so much a part of the culture in Ireland, you know, as opposed to, you know, other cultures. I'm reflecting back, I'm skipping back to teenager time in school or high school equivalents in Canada, America. And I always had a gift for writing, but it was never told that. I was never given that a year to say, look, you can do this. Or I remember writing an, an essay about people being trapped in a hurricane. And I remember being very visceral with my images. I can see it now, but I couldn't see it then. And and the teacher being very moved by me. But I remember that she told me to kind of go into a lower grade for the exam, but I still did the higher grade exam and I got an A, you know. So I was always quite fine because something in that culture was saying, you're not good enough. And I was saying, yes, I am. And bringing it forward to poetry, writing was always there along with theater and stuff and film, but but that came into the fore 
I've 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 also been a, you know I've written books as well, which um, they were out in audio at one point, but the other book I've published is my poetry book now. But like poetry, poetic poeticness only came sort of into the fore as a weapon in a sense or a tool when I lived in New York because I had this really you know really raw experience of being an immigrant, and so I wrote little notes. I didn't know they were poetic. I didn't say oh the, I'm writing poetry. They were they were poetic prose, which is something I do a lot of. And then where it really came to the fore was when I actually was living in the West of here in the West of Ireland, because it's such elemental feeling here. It's like I connected into sort of an other, another layer, another cellular layer underneath my body, which had been there maybe generations hence. And so, and then when I moved further into a lot of deep loss, it accelerated the growth of that tool as a life-saving mechanism and as an, as a mechanism of communicating with the rest of the world as maybe the place I could go at that time. So it was born, unfortunately, out of a lot of darkness and struggle. And yet at the same time, there was a lot of flow and naturalness to the, it was like the gift got a sort of adrenaline surge through circumstances. So it's always been around me. I never, and then it became very hugely much part of my, my persona or my identity actually in the last say six, seven years. Well, I understand in New York, you arrived at a very auspicious time as well. Um, if you could speak to that. I came to New York. I was quite young. Um, it was October 2001. And I'd come from, you know, uh, a place that was a country that was economically not doing great. But then this big tragedy happened in America and my friends were living over there. And I had been invited before 9-11 happened and I started followed through with the invitation because of certain things that were going on here relationally. And uh, I remember going on the plane and it was completely empty. There was about 20 people on it. So I was heading into a ghost town and was obviously heading into the center of a wound. And I remember riding on the plane, I'm wounded, New York is wounded, maybe we can heal each other. And that was quite a prophetic statement because um, I landed obviously in a place that was devastated. I, I remember seeing the smoldering ruins when I got the train down as far as the subway would let you. And it was it was there was a sort of a very dark, very strange curiosity I had to see what I was watching on TV. I was suddenly standing in front of, so it was like reverse. Would it say art imitating life, imitating art? Like suddenly, what seemed like a media onslaught became my own visceral impression of this trauma, uh, this physicalized trauma that was sitting in front of me. And so that really defined that odyssey in New York and the five or six years I spent there that was always under the current of things and, and, and really affected how I was to view. Uh, everything became more potent. Being an immigrant became more potent. Leaving became more potent. The proximity of my intimacy with everything became more potent. I, I started to discover how intimate an observer I was by being in a completely foreign landscape, which was in itself foreign to itself at the time because it was in a new territory that people didn't understand, you know? So they're all great growing tools. I can say that now with a slap on my back, but at the time it was, it's always a sense of feeling completely lost. Like, what am I doing here? And I realized looking back now, I was being drawn in a very deep level on, on these paths, these streams, because of these things that grew, grew me as a man and as a human being, and also with my talents, so to speak as well, you know? So, and to serve ultimately with that back in a way, 
you know? Yeah. Wow. And I understand you also, you, you produce a film called home, which again, seems to be a theme that has come up. Um, and, and in some ways that would seem to be a contribution towards that, towards that healing or towards that reckoning with, with the trauma or with the wound. Uh, yeah. yeah, I wonder if you could speak to that. That started out as something very humble actually, because I was working as an actor at the time in Ireland. When I came up to New York, I didn't have my green card. That came further than the line. So it was sort of officially illegal. And uh, so I was sort of trying to find out things I could do to survive. And uh, I met this filmmaker who came to my apartment at the time because I was trying to rent an upstairs apartment for the landlord in, in Brooklyn. And she came to view it. And we just got into a conversation. She just graduated in NYU film school. And I was very versed in sort of art and, and a bit of mythology, not as much as I did have now. And I just started talking about the city from from a hero's journey perspective, funnily enough, actually, this is a good time for what happens. At she said, "Oh, we could make a little film of you walking around New York and talking." I said, "Well, I'd be up for that because I wanted to do something creative, you know." And that's when I started the writings. I said, "And this little diary, just what became the narrative of the film." And it just started at the time. Actually, I started looking at Joseph Campbell, the power of myth, you know. So I was going through a very very dark time because I was getting a lot of anxiety and I didn't know where all the stuff was coming from. I can clearly see now it was coming to be released from my landscape would also bring traumas into sharper perspective and, and will be embodied physically because they're out of their place where they're buried in a way, you know? So um, with that material, then we started to walk the streets of New York and I started to see from that lens of the human affected by, by the landscape of, of the jungle, of the landscape of the jungle of human nature. And uh, so, you know, you get overwhelmed by the the immensity of all the languages and the people. And, and I sort of really took it all in. And, and I looked almost too innocent eyes at what people might have forgotten about, because in the end, we, made, we were trying to make a tribute to New York after what it had been through. And so it was sort of an amalgamation of my, my inner odyssey versus the landscape's odyssey at the time. So we both, it, was a, it was a really close compliment in a, certain, in a weird sort of way, because human beings leave their imprint on the history of New York as, as they pass through it in all different forms, architecture, music, conversation, language, art, etc. So uh, I was following a thread of footsteps of dreamers and people who'd left Ireland and came to, to help build some of these city streets. So it became me re-identifying or, or, or like, you know, places like the Statue of Liberty, the Brooklyn Bridge, places which would be passed by by the average New Yorker through the average New Yorker's tired eyes every day and suddenly reignited by my eyes to see the army and turn it into something beautiful. So ultimately then the extraordinary thing that happened, which is what I give credit to America for, despite its current status, like, well, we started with the what if, well, what if we get someone well known to do an interview and help add to the over of, of the piece. And I called up Frank McCourt in a phone book, because there's still phone boxes, and uh, he answered. <laughs> he answered the phone. He said, oh, Alan's thing here. I said, you don't know me, but I'm from Ireland. Just before he hung up, I said, I'm an actor and a writer, and we're making a film about my journey in New York. Is there any possibility that you do an interview? All right, yeah, no problem. Come on, and just we'll organize. And, he, and we did the interview, and he's a lovely man. And he got a lot of pearls. And uh, that was like, wow. I mean, this is so surreal. We have a Pulitzer Prize winner in the film. And we didn't have a dime. So I said, well, what if? And then that continued. We sort of scoured the streets like like hyenas over the <laughs> next couple of months, trying to track down stars who hung outside restaurants. And that's New York. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. But approaching them is a different story. And getting their permission is a whole other different game. But for some reason, 
you know, it's like the Joseph Campbell thing. When you're in your bliss, you're in your flow, all the doors open. So we got Liam Neeson and Woody Allen and Mike Myers and Susan Sarandon. You know, they weren't the center of the film for me, but they certainly added a degree of momentum and, and eventually publicity to the piece. And so it sort of it was very organic, the whole thing. And yet it unfolded like a canvas and we were both painting on it. It was a lot of arguments and back and forth about how it should be shaped. But in the end, what brought it, kept it together, which is where we were talking about our interview, was that I was using archetypal psychology and archetypal images and the hero's journey to help try to frame the whole film. And hence the term home, I sort of thought of Odysseus. And I mean, it's such a potent, you know, you've no idea how potent that word is to me now, even in my life. 17, 18, 19 years later, I'm still looking for that. So it's 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 become more very, very poignant to me, that word. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we screened in the Walter Reed and then I went on to win an Emmy for writing. And I, I left New York at that time and came back, got nominated and I won for, for writing. And then, you know, then things kind of started to fall apart after that in Ireland. But that's a whole other chapter we'll talk about. Sure. So that was my first sort of exposure to the idea of, of the energy of of archetypes and the energy of of uh, mythology and how my story, I wrapped my story in the right way to move other New Yorkers to see that there is a, there's a, the kernel of truth in, in the myths that I was spinning around the city, that it was a way of coping or salving or servicing or healing that part of the wound for us both. And that's why I had a very, very emotional reaction at the time to people who've seen the film. And eventually it went around PBS and different places and then in Ireland and stuff. And I sort of toured it here when I got back to Ireland. And But it always had a very poignant... I can't look at it now because there's certain things that have happened in my life since then, but I know it had moved a lot of people. And, and that was sort of a calling card for a long time for me to sort of go, I did something. But there was another part of me that was the return in mythological terms, coming back to Ireland was where the real journey began. That the journey in New York almost in reflection seems lightweight compared to what I had to go through here to come back into not fitting in anymore, to come back into a bank crash, another recession, but also then to move into the deeper part of Ireland, which is into these kind of parts, and then really going into my writing and and then other chapters which really ripped my life apart. And, and still, my boat was still rising, was still moving through that river through words. The river of words, in a way, has got me to this point today. Wow, beautiful. I mean, I was reading in an interview around that time when you left New York. You said, uh, I left because I needed to be empty again. Yeah. And uh, and there's something about that, that yeah, humility, that um, sort of willingness to, to let go um, again, perhaps into the river of words or into the mystery that I do think is such an ingredient of these thresholds um, that we're brought to. Um, but I'd love to ask you too around this idea of the poetic imagination, which I know is, a, is again a topic that's come up. And um, in some sense, I hear you almost articulating your way into it, which expressed itself through the film and, and it was sort of awakening in you. And, you know, it's something we've covered on this uh, podcast a number of ways, you know, from different perspectives. And, and again, I'd love for you to offer your take on it. Like what is the, the essence or the power of the poetic imagination, especially in these times? Well... To really just sit with it for a second um, and I wrote a talk about called the poetic called the poetic imagination and I think it's the prism of the soul of, of the soul's eye of seeing the world 
and that I go back to the primacy of nature and your the primacy that's within you, and that is pure poetry. I'll give it. I'll give. I'll fly out for example and say, there's a space that groups can uh, do their their workshops in here. It's a huge octagon space. It's a beautiful space actually, and uh, it's surrounded by windows all the way around, and uh, you can see all the elements of of uh, of the weather coming in and out. And I've written there many times and taught and reflected there and worked out there, and you know I've been. Sort of, I'm doing this new sort of physical workout routine up on a hill out the elements, and it's a bit crazy. It's a tar, it's a sledgehammer, it's like flipping a tar and all this stuff. I just need some intensity to strengthen myself and in, in the way things are. And let's come back down. I was like, you know, getting soaked by the rain, and come back into the hallway to do some warming down. And then I see this tiny little bird, and the rain is coming down in sheets, and the wind is blowing, and he's there just gently drinking the water in the tiny little pool. In, in a grass patch and there's not a movement or bother on him. There's not an, an iota of anxiety. Hmm. It's like, there's a little hum- humbling reminder that for all my supposed trying to be strong and tough, there's this little tiny fragile creature bearing the worst of the elements with such a degree of peace, you know, that it's sort of like reminding me of, of, of how little I know or how little I think I have or how little I think, how, how much wisdom I think I have compared to this animal's primacy in nature. And I think, that for me is the poetic imagination. When is is the perspective of primacy? Is is the perspective of standing up on a mountain, in the snow, or or standing by the ocean, or lighting a fire? And it's like it's always, it's always lighting your thoughts, or the language should I say the the language of nature, you know? And that to me is that's what gives me a poetic feeling in the world. It's 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 the language of nature always calling out to you, always singing you, always inviting you, always asking you to cross that threshold. And when you meet that with the inner world, you know, which is kind of has the same infinite capacity, it's it's those two places that meet together. That creates the poetry in the mind. And I think in the times we're living in where we're looking at this sort of the illiteral uh, patriarchy gone pretty much at its fever pitch of insanity, um, my job as a poet, I'm thinking, is to re-beautify language because this is a war of words in the world right now. You know, the language of fear, the language of hate, the language of divisionism, the language of, 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 of lack of self-worth, the language of competition. What a poet or philosopher or speaker should do is to re-imbue you with the idea of looking through your primal eyes and not the eyes of, of, of the false samsara structure of the world. So you do that through, I do that through words and giving them the proper energy and, and, and rhythm and etymology that you can undo that skin of that, of that um, patriarchal poison to me and, and then sort of just, just tap into, into, uh, into the imagination again. And I'm lucky that I've, I've recalibrated my language through nature. I mean, I've done so many walks up, up roads all over Ireland and every time I've walked one particular road near here, and I've walked it literally hundreds of times, but I've walked it in every state of being, in a state of despair, in a state of joy, in a state of ecstasy, in a state of fear. And always I reflect in my poetic imagination how the same place can feel very different according to whatever state of mind I'm in. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that poetry, that mythology, which is living in the language of Ireland, and also that this place has for... for um, it has four provinces, but I, I have a theory called the fifth province, 
And the fifth province is everything underneath. It's all the poetry, it's all the beauty, it's all the darkness, it's all the death, it's all the dying, it's all the song, it's all the softness, it's all it's all our ancestral nobility. It's all of that together. It's just underneath the veil here. You can literally sometimes poke your finger through it, particularly at this time of year. So I live through that, and my language comes through that, and the poetic imagination comes through that 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 liminal world, you know. And uh, I haven't talked about this stuff in quite a while, actually. So. I'm sort of reflecting heavily on where and why and how it built up in me and how it served me and I've hopefully how I've tried to serve others knowing and feeling what I know. It's almost like tattooed inside me, you know? Mm. And if you walk with it and if you're honest with it and you're, and you're humble with it, it's, it's infinite. Whereas the finite idea of civilization, the finite idea of what we've constructed is so breaking down because it's false. It's, there's a falsity to it. It doesn't have the the sort of immortality of, of poetry of the heart or poetry of nature. You know, I think that is the difference between, you know, Western civilization, it's always steeped in mortalness, you know, whereas our mythology, our, our mythological passions always have a sense of, 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 of infinity to them, you know? That's beautifully said. I mean, you know, what's, what's coming to me is this recognition of um, this kind of archetypal relationship, particularly around language uh, as, as a kind of conjuring capacity, um, which I would attribute perhaps to the masculine archetype of the magician, yeah. uh, as well as this quality of the sensuality of the world and this kind of a being in relationship and a kind of erotic sensuality, right, with the world itself. And so for me, that's the archetype of the lover. Um, yeah. And so I'd be curious to hear, yeah, how those two um, coincide or dance or in relation, uh, you know, in the process of of poetry. Well, all my poetry, and I always very wary of getting into sort of woo woo theory theorization about it because I've had a lot of groups that come here, spiritual groups, and you just get really tired of that same kind of. My my poetry is all written out without editing. You know, it's all written out just in one form and a lot of us to do is because I'm always taking in a high degree of observancy about things and um, if you're close to nature that much it, it becomes second nature to be part of nature in a way you're not thinking anymore and it's come back to the John Moriarty quote which is the idea of, of it's almost like I'm channeling through, channeling through my senses about the poetic form you know and it's poetry is living this is the thing Reciting to me is incantation, you know, and, and that for me is very, very important. It's incantational. It's living. It's actually happening in the present. It's not a, it's not a recorded recording something from the past. It's actually, it's actually breathing as I read. And if it's breathing as I read, then it's vibration is, is coming right into, into someone's heart because it's coming from my heart, you know, but where does that or, originate from? It's in the fires I've done. It's it's in it's in seeing that bird. It's in it's in seeing the, the ten thousand sunsets, you know. And and I've been, it's been a privilege in the loss and suffering of it all to realize that I was being gifted. And John Moriarty, to quote him again, said, "Sometimes there's a parable being acted out upon you." Mm. <laughs> and I'm not exceptional. I'm the same as I'm as no more less or, or more than anybody else. But I truly feel when I came back to Ireland there was a tapestry that I pulled the thread of that I had no idea the depth and the immensity of where I was going to go. I think if I'd have known that I wouldn't have come back because I think it would, if somebody showed me a video of what was going to happen, I would have said, no, I think I'll just stay here because it's so, it's so humbling. It's so frightening to go down to the core of your very deepest losses 
And then I literally had to write my way out of it. And that's where my, that's where nature gave me the bridge with her hands to, to create that poetry to get me home. You know? Well, uh, is there one that is uh, perhaps jostling for the desire to be told right now um, around this, this very moment? Funny you should say that. I, I think because we're both in sort of in the realm of talking about man and mythology, I think this, this poem I want to read is probably favored by a lot of people because living in the burn, living in the west of Ireland, living in the primacy of this place, it undoes your perception of what it is to be a man. And there was a man that I'd met, really, there's a lot of bachelor farmers here who never moved anywhere, who were the last to leave their, their farmland because maybe they were the most unambitious of the group. You know, most people emigrated here because there was nothing around here. And uh, this man I'd met who lived right beside a very remote place I lived, deep in the burn. And uh, he started to, he influenced me in, in, in an un, unspoken way because he, he didn't say much. He, he died shortly after I knew him, but he, he, he introduced us to the idea of the, of the world being at your door because he didn't go anywhere, but he, he seemed to have the world in his eyes. So it's like there was the mythology of the landscape was actually in his skin and bone as a man, you know? So this poem is, uh, is sort of a, a dedication to, to many men who've lived and died here and yet who, who carry a, f- a flame that's still in the landscape, you know? So it's called The Farmer's Hands, uh, Ode to Patrick O'Leary. Winter bore a man of earth, a barren, lonely man. His olded eyes and sun-creased face, staring from his cottage in a dark and lonely place. He died before I knew him well, and cows circled his broken home. Taking vows of silence as the rain poured in, he was a ghost who walked alone. He had hands of rock, and yet he moved like the wind has a sovereign, silent clock. He would task his animals with gentle care, and I would see him through the windows, a ragged ghost of the holy air. Whilst others lined the concrete roads, filled with worries and heart-filled loads, Patrick would ponder the depth of a lake or the size of a whiskey for his guests to take. Generations from his clan stood into the flames of a fire that burned that had no name. His wrinkled hands and Guinness lips, his devil smile drinking in sips. For this limestone wasteland was his place, and his sauntering feet left not a trace. His words they felt like an ancient song, passed from the mouths from his blood long gone. He was an epic man who outran his fate, yet his funeral was sung by a bird on a gate. Finches knew on the wings of time that Patrick flew on the rhythm of a rhyme. For the poem of Ireland kept his belly full, the rich broken landscape of the meat of a bull. And at night, small universes spoke his name, and his cottage was moonlit in homage to a man untamed. So if we drove in the night, you might see a shape wandering the roads like a ghost trying to escape. But now he's left, he's gone toward a distant sun, 
and the bachelor king leaves behind no one. So when you visit the burn, look for an empty dirt road near a magnificent dolmen beside a broken abode. Call out the name Patrick O'Leary in the night, and you might just see his laughing shadow light. For the men of the West, the old farmers, one and all, carry the soul of Ireland and will never, ever fall. I'm struck by the, I mean, the, the conjuring that we just spoke to, that, that this really is a way of like seeing um, and presencing this, um, I mean, this man and the man that, the man that stand with him in that same story. Um, and I'm really struck by the tone of like a grief tone in the whole thing, um, yeah. which, Interesting. It, yeah. yeah, which feels, and again, grief as a way of beauty, as a way of seeing. You know, which yeah, I feel so much is somehow the soul of poetry, or at least seems to be this this part of the soul of Ireland. Well, I think I have a little saying that I thought of, and it's like in the end, all darkness turns into beauty. You know, and my book, Beauty Lost Redemption, is literally those the innocence of beauty in the world, and then the loss, and then the alchemy of that comes redemption if you're lucky to to have that as part of the as part of the cycle but i mean you could look at that as a sort of a a, conde- a, a, a condense a condensing of the hero's journey in a way you know in in three words so all of those couple of hundred poems that i wrote during that period of time and then the five years when i had really lost my marriage and a car accident my mother died all this really had a very heavy quick succession of very very deep losses um, those those uh, those poems and and those words then became place that I I I hid in I stayed in to take refuge you know and being in Ireland being in this elemental part of the world is when this landscape starts to do its work in you and I mean the deepest grieving is also where the deepest healing in and and then I was lucky I was through all the winters I spent here alone and, and all of this suffering. And it's almost like a cliche. I look and laugh a little bit now and look, and there was a poet left alone, marriage gone, mother gone, my cat dead. I mean, a serious head injury in a car accident. I mean, these blues song. And there I was riding in the cold, broke, writing these poems. I mean, it's like, it's like a, it's almost like a romantic cliche, but it was actually real. And I hated every minute of it you know, because who would want to love that? There's nothing romantic about having to, to barely hang on. And I, all I did every day was I at least wrote, I wrote one poem a day for a couple of years. Wow. To, and it was just, it, they were all, and then he edited them, edited, edited with a, f- a very good friend of mine who helped me publish the book in America. I edited 65 of those into the book. So I have the original copy of the book here and it's, it's all, it's all creased and tea stained and it's sort of like, it's my, it's my book I've read from, but I got the privilege then after I moved to this retreat center, which is where I guess we could really talk is where I really began to heal, which is in the physicality and which is in, into my masculine really in the end that saved me. Um, and I got to then turn the poems toward people who were groups that came from all over the world here. A lot of my friend, the harpist, and I, I got to do recitals of all the loss and the redemption for people who are hungering for some Irish culture. So you can clearly see that it was very much, if you, if you laid this out, 
if you're a God looking down on me and go, right, I'm going to do this, this, and this to you, but then I'll give you this, this, and this. You know, all the pieces seem very clear to me now how I was being acted out upon, but at the time it felt like one wreckage to the next. Yeah. One, one clinging onto one piece of wood in the middle of, you know, I always think of that scene from Odysseus when Poseidon, you know, has him, he's killed all his crew and he's destroyed a ship and he has him on a plank flown the ocean and, and he'd say, oh God, oh my God, why have you forsaken me? And and in the end, at the very end of Odysseus, he said it was all to show him that, to, to humble him, to show him he was just a man. And that's what I went through was this serious it's actually very emotionally, I can feel it in my chest when I talk about it. It's a serious humbling. I've probably buried some of that stuff. I think I've, I thought, I think I've done a lot of work in it, but part of it's still very raw and will always be raw. And I think there's an intention behind the rawness, which is that it's there to inform how you serve others. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. so, and that was the final part of it. I don't want to jump ahead, but service is a word that comes up a lot for me. I mean, I'm struck by this recognition that that poetry is a kind of alchemy, right? A, a kind of a sorrow um, with no meaning, or in some sense, experienced without meaning, turned into um, a kind of uh, a beauty, right? An, al- an alchemical um, transformation. Uh, it can be that, I guess I'm saying. And of course, you know, there's plenty of poetry that seems to cycle in a kind of psychological, you know, navel gazing. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, and and I get, I hear you speaking to something else, which again, it feels. Um, yeah, deeply necessary again in these times where so much of the calamity that seems to be, you know, raining down daily, um, that that there's this function. Um, and then I wonder, you know, classically or traditionally, say around this tradition of the bard, like which you've spoken to, I think, in other interviews. But like, was this one of the functions of the bard in in culture in the village to to you know take meaning from? these kinds of things and turn them into the beauty or the capacity for the people to see themselves or their, their experiences differently. I definitely think so. And I'm thinking just, you said that it's about spinning myths, isn't it? It's like webs, you know, it's like creating a new web. I walk out into a field the other day, I've gone to do my workout and it was a cold morning and you know, this, there had been moisture and a bit of rain and there was all these webs all over, all over the grasslands and there are all these beautiful little jeweled webs. And it's like, you know, they're like little pieces of myths to me because they're magical and they're poetic, you know? So I'm like, have I just been spinning mini myths from the alchemy of of the of the loss of of relationship between me and the land? And I think that's what it is. It's like, and that's why it is incantational. And that's why I do feel I take it very seriously when I read it because it's it's still alive in me. It's still living when I say it. And you're right. There is. I I I, I detest navel gazing. I detest even if, I'm, if I feel conceited when I'm talking because. I'm I'm not throwaway about it, but you know we're all mortal and we're here a short while and we're soon forgotten. So I'm quite humble about that stuff. But at the same time, when I'm when I'm reading in front of an audience or they used to be audiences, um, I'm absolutely present to their feelings and, and to their open open hearts. And I just try and, in a certain sense, I, I try and allow the words to open their their souls and spirits a bit more because I do feel the landscape is with me because I've bled in it. I you know when I had my car accident. Christ, it was November four years ago this year, and that was just the time of my 16-year marriage had broke, and then my mother was actually in hospital dying, so the accident was sandwiched in between those two calamities, and it was a very dark November night, and it was like the worst torrential of hailstones that I'd I'd ever witnessed, and I was in my car, and you know, I was hit by another car, allegedly my fault, 
and uh, it was just a very because I was I was just in turmoil because of my marriage and because of my mother it was just overwhelmed. I shouldn't even be driving. I shouldn't be sitting around. You know, I could say that now with hindsight, but you know, I was knocked unconscious and I woke up and I was standing up in the middle of the road. How the hell? You know, it was just a, it was like I died. I mean, it was like a, a near death experience, and you know, I felt the top of my head and I could feel it now, and and it was this massive, like someone had chopped off of my head with an axe. You know. It was like a two-inch gash going from the side of my temple over my skull to the back of my head. And I'm like, I can't even, if I talk about it, I can feel it now, but I will talk about it. And so, you know, there was the whole thing of going to the hospital and, and getting all these staples and, and then coming home alone to my cottage. Like, I mean, they did have a friend, an older woman, which I'd probably tell you about. She's an amazing woman. She's 93. She's one of my best friends here. She was there with me. So I made one phone call and you'd think you'd have to call some burly. And I called my 92 year old neighbor and said, Mary, I need somebody here because it was so overwhelmed, you know, and that took a huge amount of recovery that because I was very lucky. I didn't have any brain injuries, just a bit of concussion. I was very, very lucky. So that was, I look at that mythically now. That was, I was covered head to toe in blood. I mean, I remember looking in the window of the hospital ward and just seeing I was red completely like in my white t-shirt, my everything was just red. You know, because a head, a head gash is always, you lose, you know, it's very dramatic as well, the blood and stuff like that. So, and then my mother died three weeks after that. So I had to keep my, and I had to do a tour with people around Ireland. So I had to keep myself together. And then when I came back in January, then I really grieved because my mother died on December 26th. And it's tied in with, I did a eulogy for her. I'm not spinning off here. And it was a very powerful thing that I wrote because I had tried to honor her grace and her fragility and her silence and her, her, her sad. She was very fragile when she, in the last few years. So I tried to honor that. And I brought part of the West and its elemental sort of directness about death and life with the writing with me and what had just happened to me in my marriage. And also it was all in those words. And it was, again, this alchemy again. And this old, this old community where I grew up was like, who is this guy? You know, I came out of nowhere, and it's a very bardic thing that it, even the priest came up and says, you did my job, like, you know? And this isn't boast. This is, it's absolutely the opposite of that. It's like, I just was trying to honor my mother, you know? And the only way I knew how was through words, and my family would never have really trust. I would have surprisingly trusted me with it because it was such a hard time. But uh, And then I had to drive back or come back, and, and then I closed the door of my cottage, and it was the most immense feeling of loss, like. And I, I knew no way out of that. It got very dark for a while, mm. very, very dark. And it was my cast that kept me going. Um, and my riding, it was just, I, I could see myself in that cottage now. And this is how, it, I didn't have a notepad or a laptop. I had my phone and I would and I would put it up against the window to get a signal. And then I would write my poetry. I'd write my one poem and send it off to my Facebook or my Google Docs. And then I'd go out for the day and I had nowhere to go. I had no work at the time. I just would hitch. Like I was like Bill Bixby from the incredible. I just hitch <laughs> not knowing where I was going. I'm serious. I was completely and utterly shattered. Um, losing a parent can, par- can do that too. It's like a snow shaker from where you came from. Your mother is gone. So the myth it's like my friend, a lovely man. I knew Dennis is a priest. He said, it's like you're someone has taken your umbrella away. Well, wow. you know, and it's a very, very deep connection. I don't, I, I, I challenge anyone to not be affected by the loss of their mother, even if they had no relationship with her. It's it's where you were birthed from. So it's a, it's like it's like something doors being closed, 
you know so that that and with my marriage loss which was you know that was a lightning bolt to the chest and i'm giggling about it because at the time it was devastating and it was just all those things together and then the physical trauma but then when it came to this retreat place this was the last act in way of three acts i literally then getting into the the mythic masculine literally now the first thing i did here was i split wood for eight months straight <laughs> like i just chopped and split literally tons and tons of wood here through the winter in a t-shirt through the spring through the autumn and that became my thing here it's sort of a community place and that was my thing no one else did i just did that filled up like bays and bays of wood because that was my way of meditating on on all all the loss you know and that became a really deep medicine then where I finally started to be become actually physically into nature with it. The wood became a very deep place for me to handle. And then my thing of lighting very big fires, which became a big thing for groups here. And the fire is such an important element of, of story and poetry in Ireland where you have, you know, a colonized time, loads of strangers or friends sitting in a dark roomed cottage with nothing to light but the fire. And then fires that sometimes were lit generationally for, de- for 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 decades on end, and then all the softness in the shadows of those stories, and I, I became I got to live that. And the fire is absolutely primordially important for me to have in this little place that I live. It's that flame lighting the flame and, and and the wood warming you. You know, wood warms you three times and all that stuff. So I became very into it with wood, and uh, that was part of the physicalization of of my wounds. You know, and that's where I really begin to understand where the real imbalance for me was in the masculine. It wasn't the feminine. The feminine was very charged with this poetic creativity and this hypersensitivity, but my masculine was severely damaged for since I was a child, and it stopped my direct. It stopped me aiming my arrow. Like, and nature brought me back into my masculinity in the last three and a half years very powerfully. You know. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so many great themes in there, and powerful themes. I did want to ask you again, as uh, as one as well who's also been through divorce. You know, seven years ago, my marriage ended, and um, there's something, you know, again, many men, depending on their stories, you know, live through that. I'm thinking of Robert Bly and Iron John. You know, he speaks of uh, the road of ashes, right? Where where it typically hits around, you know, 35 ish. For for me, it was kind of right on track, and uh, it really was again all the ideas of who you thought you were, or relationships, and all the rest. You know, are sort of burned to ash, and you're left in this in this place, in this darkness. And it is not nothing. Um, it's, it's a place to, yeah, to seek, I mean, the humility or the, the ability to, to, you know, speak of it. And this is where I see maybe for the first time of how necessary it feels the skillfulness of poetry in that time, uh, is actually vital. Like as in, you know, with men, um, going through that kind of, uh, descent, you know, it should be equipping them with the capacity for poetry, Right. Um, instead of numbing out on, you know, alcohol or whatever it is, all these other ways in which the willingness to to work in that way in the mythopoetic, you know, is the medicine actually that they need. And certainly I, I needed that during that time as well. I mean, I'm a huge of his work and uh, all those guys need and all them. And uh, I've been revisiting my, uh, Robert Moore. I love as well. Robert L. Moore. And uh, I heard a beautiful thing. There's an African guy who's also talked as part of his circle the minnesota men's work you've probably seen them maybe studied some of the book was it maladoma Some? yeah yeah he's lovely I, I love that guy and he said you know i have quite a strong presence and i feel like sometimes it's not like i've been attacked for that but i've sort of felt like 
something people have been drawn towards it and sometimes in a, in a hurtful way I go why would people do this because he said it beautifully he said sometimes when you're blessed or if you've you know you've done the work and you've gone those journeys there's a blessing around you that people will betray you because they want to be blessed by you and he said that if you have a groom full of men together who've been betrayed that's such a huge potential for for being blessed and when you see someone who maybe have wounded you or spoke to you in the, or damaged you in a marriage or whatever and, and that they're looking for your blessing then you can feel much more compassionate towards the wound and towards the so-called person you thought might have hurt you rather than seeing them as just an outright attack in a certain sense so i think that taps into the whole issue with fathers and you know all that material it's a perfect forge for you becoming who you are. And I can look back clearly and say, I'm not what you would feel. I'm actually glad all of this stuff has happened because I, I certainly am much stronger and prouder and feeling about who I am now than, than who I was back then. I can clearly see where the wound was in my marriage relationship. I can clearly see why I would be in a difficult... I was still a boy, you know? And I, and I don't mean that in a, in a, in a humiliating way. I just hadn't been blessed. So I had to go and bless myself on the landscape. It took a long time. I had the privilege. Nature had to be my mentor. All the expanse of it, not one person. I couldn't walk to another tribal hut and see a grandfather there and get the grandness of his care. You know, I, I had a grandmother in a way, my friend Mary, who's this amazing woman. She was there to hold a lot of that darkness. But in the end, it truly was between me and the landscape. And I think that's where Ireland is such a beautiful osmosis it can father you and mother you at the same time and the burn is a very fathering place because it's such a harsh place and the winters are hard here but i revel in that now that uncomfortability is actually my medicine now that's why i go up and i and i hit i i work out with the tar because i, I need that that rawness in my life you know i need that that medicine you know but i wanted to read a poem i think the poem for me definitively about men I'd read this. It's only a short poem, and it's called Father. And uh, if you want to talk to me about that afterwards now, sure. um, because I think it's I think it's central to a lot of the stuff that you're bringing up. Um, this poem is called uh, Father, and it's a short one. I went to an ocean filled with my father's fears. I went to an ocean filled with my father's tears. I went to a shoreline unbroken in the sun, and there the father's father stood adjoining me as one. For the rapture of the universe was caught in every wave, and the ceaseless grief and sorrow had made me such a slave. And the roar of storms above soon approached the soul-filled caves. And then all the fathers' fathers started to be saved. Their voices whispered nightly on perfect water foam. In unison they spoke and said, My son, you are the unwritten poem. For the sweat of world betrayal by fuller broken men had kept my blood in anger so frozen in the den. So I went upon my knees at the holy ocean's brow, and I knew the warrior serpent was standing with me now. I carved the words anew in sands unwashed by time, and said, now the grief you suffered, Father, will be washed along with mine.
I think that's really been the biggest part of my journey, if you want the truth, is is coming, is is to find my masculine again and find that it's it's as much a nurturer as the feminine. And, you know, the vessel, you know, Robert L. Moore talks about the vessel that's that needs to be created to hold these powerful energies certainly wasn't in me or it's not in many men. And, and, you know, they break at a certain age. They might have the the sort of foundation of kids, marriage, career and stuff, but underneath that is the swarming universal, these, these elemental energies, you know. And I think I was very lucky or blessed that I got to nature at the right time. I, I, if I had all that loss somewhere in a, in a city or something, I probably wouldn't have made it, you know. So I was held and, and saved in a sense and brought home to my masculine by, first of all, being a witness with nature and then to be physically part of it and to work in it and to be served and service, mm. you know? So that poem is sort of a dedication to that. We are integrational trauma is a big thing. I believe in Ireland, you know, and we, we do have to, you know, a person who feels the family's pain that can be usually the one who's the most wounded, but also the most equipped to alchemize that wound. And so that poem when I've read that actually by the fire with groups I've I've been around here, particularly with men, and they're always struck by that because, you know, it's not look, you know, this is what you're doing, like it's it's just not given enough enough knowledge. And right now, Ireland has such a vastly huge suicide rate amongst men. And I know it's because they haven't been blessed, it's as simple as that. And it's funny, I was gonna hold a retreat the first retreat really here ever in Bog Hill, this is what's called Bog Hill Centre, for men. And, and, the, and the name of the retreat was uh, titled, We Forgot We Were Kings. You know, it was, a, it was a journey into divine masculine through the landscape in Ireland. And I'm sure you know, obviously, what the feeling and the sense of that would be. But the nobility here and, and the ancestral potency here has been, has been blunted we have no leaders. We have, you know, kingship, you know, serving the divine, like a, that's in all men, potentially. That would be such a healing aspect if you could bring men on that journey and just let them be with the medicine of the land for a couple of days and just talk about it and be with it. And a lot of people were saying, I want to do this because it, it hadn't been dedicated to men here in that, in that structure and using poetry, like you said, not just the physicality of being out there hiking and doing all the stuff I do, but actually the, the, the sensuality of poetry, which is like the guided hand of the feminine, just gently opening those frozen areas. I've always said that a man should be hardened, physical on the outside, but also very porous and soft on the inside. Most men, it's the reverse. They're soft physically and not tough in the land, and they're frozen like ice in, in the center. It needs to be reversed. We need to, John O'Donoghue said that you need to stay porous. I totally agree with him because it's, someone asked me before, I said, why do you think Ireland survived all its eight centuries of colonization? I said, it's simply because of its softness, the softness of the landscape, the music, the softness of the speaking voice, the Gaelic, the softness of the, of the music and the culture, and the softness of moving through things instead of being broken by them, you bend to them. You know, as a great man, I wish you had a met him called Dan Cronin, who was one of my mentors in a way. He's not, he, died, he passed away last year. He was 98 years old, but he had such a deep oratory knowledge of a certain part of Kerry uh, that he knew culture going back 9,000 years. And I remember when I lost my marriage and I called him up devastated, he said, Alan, you must rise. And he hung up. It was just a few words and that was, all he, <laughs> that was the advice he would give me. But he said, I'd say I'm broke. 
you're not broken, you're bruised. You're just bruised, you know? So, but yeah, like, so that poem is sort of, for me, the the beginning of, if I was to be in front of many who hadn't done that kind of work, just to introduce them to a feeling. That's what poetry does. It gives you a feeling of something that you can't quite put your finger on. It's done correctly, I think, you know? Hmm. Well, I'm struck as well by so much of the, the kind of modern you know, men's work, let's call it, um, often like navel gazing poetry ends up somewhat being like referential only to even the realm of men, like, a, you know, getting together and, you know, sort of place that's, that's outside of nature um, to do work, you know, with each other. And in some ways I'm recognizing how limiting that is because there's something deeply um, necessary about actually, you know, working on the relationship to place and to land because that's such a much bigger sort of uh, encounter with these vaster energies, um, which in some ways, right, inform the masculine experience so deeply. Um, and, and I think in the old, all the older stories, like this was so much a part of it. You know, nature wasn't like a backdrop to the uh, self-growth, you know, of, of the individual so much as it was like this encounter with it and, and the, how it informs, again, yeah, both the soul and the landscape and that they're in this kind of courtship. Yeah, and courtship is a good word. I've often said that, you know. That I said I, I lost a marriage, but I remarried nature. I, I, I betrothed myself to nature. And I was just thinking about a story that came into my mind about it. I heard it a few years ago about a younger man who committed suicide. And he was crying out to his mother. He said, I just want to be in the land. I just want to be in a farmer with animals. He lived in the city, you know. And how profoundly sad is that? Like, he just wanted to get to the land. So how powerful to be will be the medicine of just to have people who are really struggling, just to have them in nature. And, you know, it's probably a cliche and people, people would say that, I'll go for a walk in the park. But I mean, in the deepest part of nature, like a lot of people who have come here to do workshops, which a lot of it is, I'm sorry to say, navel-gazing, and they and they sort of culturally appropriate Indian culture, native culture. But the medicine is right, right under your feet. So what I would do is I'd light a fire, and that would become sort of the highlight because they get to just reflect and they happen to be in Ireland. They happen to be have the earth under their feet and this fire, just sort of giving them this, this focus, you know, this gazing, you know. And I think, I really believe, I mean, quite sad that I can't do this retreat this side of the year, but hopefully next year at some point. And I really feel that there's a crying out for just to breathe, if you know what I mean. Not to pontificate, not to intellectualize, but to be more, to go back to my old friend, John Moriarty, just to be in the senses. And that le- allow people then to, to un- un- invoke their own language then their own connection, you know, without kind of being too heavy with the philosophy with them. Because I think one thing is my stuff is experiential. It's not academic, you know, and that's the difference, I think, to a lot of the work I do. It's actually born of direct experience. You know, it's, I do respect all the mythological academics around the world and people who I've gained knowledge of. But what separates me a little bit is that I've lived it. I'm in it. I've bled it. I've, I've, I've worshipped it. I've been humbled by it. And, and that's, I think, for my writing, it's really weird. There's another book that I haven't, I won't get a chance to read here, but it's called The Soul of Ireland and Odyssey Home. I wrote that before this poetry, before all the loss had happened. And it's extraordinary for me because it's one of my best pieces of writing I've ever done. It's a nonfiction, literary nonfiction about my journey back from New York to, across Ireland. And so much of the writing, I'm not kidding you, so much of writing of all these different places of travel was prophesizing what was going to happen to me. But I was writing it like it already had. I can't explain it. How do I explain it? And that I can look back and read those pieces now, and I'm like, 
it's almost like I'm giving myself wisdom for something that I've I've had only happen in the last couple of years. So that means the song is eternal, that the wisdom is eternal. You know when people say here, oh, a generation passes on, it's gone. No, the music is in the landscape. You you look at this, the genius of, of young traditional players who are only five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, and where do they get that medicine from? That's the thing that gives me hope in the world. You and I know, it's like what Joseph Campbell said, I remember he said, that the next mythology we're going to have to focus on is the one of the planet. Obviously, that's coming to sharp view. But, but the song is still there. We just have to reinvent it. It's not, when an old storyteller dies, it's not gone. You just, someone else will pick up the torch. It's just that someone has to pick up the torch. New mythologies have to be made from the old. But it seems like kingship, which is the thing I keep thinking of, when you look at the qualities of kingship and then you look at the people who are supposedly the leaders, you go, are you kidding me? You wouldn't even get in the first interview. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, seriously, you wouldn't even get the call back from your CV. You would be thrown in the bin. Mm-hmm. But then what do you do if you don't have them? Then you have to find your own kingship. You have to find your own. And it would, it's, it's beautiful to think of a new generation of men or a generation of older men who find that kingship in them again. And then, then the seed will grow because, you know, the feminine has risen and there's obviously a lot of contention about the diminution of the masculine, and obviously a complete misinterpretation of the masculine because it is divine. And uh, wouldn't it be great because they're needing that because so many women have come here and said, oh, my man doesn't know how to talk to me. How many times have I I've had a dollar for every time I hear that? You know, and it's like, it's because he doesn't know how to talk to himself. That's why, you know, and that has to be taught or has to be explored. It has to be given space and time for that. So to facilitate some of that does interest me, you know, because I think once you get the spark, you don't go back. Once you're a little bit awakened around that stuff, you don't, it starts you on a path, you know? So I've had the privilege of time and loss together. When you think of men who don't have the privilege, they have loss, but they don't have the time for it to manage it. That's what breaks them, I think, you know? Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm struck by this relationship between this, um, Kind of like the the cracking of one's you know certainty of one's um, you know firing on all cylinders of who they know themselves to be right men that in some sense are bereft of that uh, that breaking down or breaking through, but to actually allow the the mystic the mythic to come in, and that and that there is some relationship between between suffering right between this um, breaking down which allows for a different kind of orientation to emerge, and in some sense how much more trustworthy that is. You know, like you say, like the the I would say maybe the crisis of masculinity, um, if it could be called that, would be that maybe it's lost its orientation as uh, in service to the land, in service to to the the old stories or informed by the old stories, and so in some sense it's cycling in its own, you know, lost uh, ego, um, looking, it's searching, right, searching for that place to actually be of service, and of course modernity doesn't really provide that that link back home, but instead kind of offers a you know a fairy tale called live forever or be the be the best you can be um but there's something else awaiting i think below the surface and it's interesting you, you know um do you know the poem invictus mm-hmm. but william i'll just quickly read that because i think it's it sort of wraps what we're talking about for men it's like out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole i thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul and the fell clutch of circumstance i have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shan't find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, 
how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I just think we're always being led. I feel like in the end, if, you're, if your soul is a ship and you're steering the course, your soul, let your soul take that course. Most people don't have the courage for that or they don't have the time, you know. And I see in the storm of the chaos of, of breakdowns and, and, and men in crisis, right? It's like a, a ship, a pirate ship on top of a stormy ocean with the mast cracking open and people scrambling for life. But underneath that is the soul, which just sees this beautiful creature like a blue whale moving perfectly through calm waters amidst the chaos, you know, as I say in reverse, the storm before the calm, you know, there has to be the storm first to find that place of calmness. So I like the idea of, of ultimately, if we really trust, and it's the thing I've had to learn to live deeply, is to trust your soul, it, that it, it knows how to play the long game. You know, if you can just look at the signs, you know. Well, wow, that's a beautiful image, um, the blue whale beneath the, the cracking pirate ship and the, yeah. the, the trust of the soul. And look what's happening to us right now. It feels like it's all crumbling in a way, but yet beneath that is this mirror calm lake of, 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 of stillness to me, of, of perfection, of infinity, of poetry, and of nature. And, and that's where the divine masculine lies, is this image. Have you seen the film Excalibur? John Borman. I love that film. I watched it recently. I'm so moved by that, the last scene where he throw. And in fact, my friend, my late friend and his father worked in that film. And my late friend... He has the sword. Well, he, it's it, the sword is with his family. The Excalibur sword. And I just, I'd love to ha- have her, or have that sword in my life, you know. But wow. he throws the sword back into the, into the into the. That was part of the trailer I made for my for my retreat. You know, I'm so moved by the image of the of the feminine, the divine feminine coming out and to grab the sword, and it's sort of like it's like in care of the masculine philosophy of service is in care of guided by the nature's feminine again. It's it's it, they're both interlinked. You know, and ultimately in the end, ultimately my last part of this journey for me was then going into service. As I said to someone, someone who's quite an addict here, says the only way you're going to find your way home is through service. That's it. That's the way. That's the way you burn off. It's the kind of a, a not a quick route, as Henry Miller said. The short, the longest way is the shortest way home. It's it's the way to get to what matters. And I love that. You know the film um, Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Bill Murray. Bill Murray. <laughs> I mean, that's such a great film, though, because it actually it's perfect. Because it's like you can only you can only fulfill the day. He could only get out of the day by finally finding the divinity in it, in but in, in service, he ended up getting out of his own way and then just helping as many people as he could in the day, and then finally found sort of a perfection, a contentment. You know, so I believe that's so true. It's like a day where you're not helping someone is a day wasted. And I'm not some pious saint, you know. I, I, I do try and do my bit, but it, it never. It, I always say when I go off and I go off balance and it can tend to happen a lot, I always go back into service, whether it's going out and chopping a bunch of wood for people around here or it's, you know, it's just doing something for the animals I take care of or it's tending my own fire to take care of myself. It's service. And that's what's, you know, leader-servant. You know, that's what's missing from leadership is service, service to divine and, and the masculine, you know, so... Well, I mean, that's a beautiful um, invitation, I think, to end it in our conversation today, Alan. Yeah, I'm feeling really grateful for our time, and um, well, I'm happy to you go ahead. I was saying that it was it was it was it was lovely to reflect on part the parts some of my journey and where I have been to now. Just to sort of it's just a bit of a mirror, particularly in the day I've had, just to remind myself of how far I've come up the mountain and where I've been and stuff, and just to have it stand on the hill and sort of look back. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit network.themythicmasculine.com to become a member.